accountable for whatever happens tonight. Um, so uh, maybe a little bit, but it's mostly on God. So uh, <clears throat> uh, I was really convicted this last week. We, the young adults were, were studying or going through Francis Chan's book, um, Crazy Love. And uh, so I got, I got really pushed around this week, and I like it. I like to get pushed around. I like it when the Lord convicts me. Uh, I like it when He pushes me forward. And I don't know, I felt like, yeah, I felt like Wednesday night was a cool night, and I hope it was meaningful for some of you young adults. It was very meaningful for me. And uh, so, you know, when I get jazzed like this, I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, but we'll try to stay on the text and uh, do a credible job of expositing it. As I said to you earlier, <clears throat> I know something about you, um, and it's not good. Um, the reason I know this about you is because I know it about myself, and I know it about every other human being. It's what I said to you earlier. I know that you take almost every good thing in your life for granted. Now, I know some of us are probably more advanced in our thankfulness than some others, but I have a hunch, and maybe you're a lot better than me. I don't know. Um, you take a whole lot for granted every single day, and you never thank God for it at all. Um, so I'll let, I'll let that land on you for a few minutes and you can think about it. There's this kind of thoughtless thanklessness that permeates much of humanity. Um, I certainly know I was guilty before I was converted. I was converted at 28. And uh, so some of you probably know what I'm talking about. It is no excuse... In fact, in one sense, it makes our thanklessness all the more grievous. But I, I heard a theologian talk about this one time, and I thought, he's right. So let me just, let me just read from A.W. Pink. He says, <clears throat> Our conscious gratitude is often withheld from God simply because His goodness toward us is so constant, so abundant, so pervasive, so common, His goodness toward us is lightly esteemed because it is experienced every single moment of every single day. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's saying that God's goodness is so omnipresent, is so ubiquitous, it is so, yeah, as he said, pervasive. It's, we're like fish in water, right? We don't even realize the goodness of God. We're so enveloped in it. It's like I always used to say, we used to go to a conference in Switzerland every, week, uh, every year, every summer. And, you know, I'm pretty sure the Swiss don't see the Alps anymore. I'm pretty sure they don't. Because they're just exposed to it every morning. There they are. And they get to the point where they just don't even see it anymore. And I think many of us are guilty of not being thankful for all that God has done in our lives. I know how it is in my home culture. I don't know what it's like in yours. I try to keep up with the culture at home. I watch a lot of stuff coming out of the U.S. And it seems to me, I'm not going, going to indict all of my countrymen, but it seems to me that there's a whole lot of victimhood going on um, in, in, in my home culture and a whole lot of entitlement. There's whole victimhood thing and entitlement thing. Uh, 
in, in my view, this is kind of a backhanded, a backhanded slap at God. Okay, America's the richest nation in the world, in the history of the world. And we got, and I'm not saying we don't have poverty, I'm not saying that. But I'd just like to hear, I know I'm not going to hear it in the media, but I'd like to hear just a little bit of thankfulness, right? Instead of all this victimhood and, and entitlement mentality, I grow weary of it. But I think Peak is right, and, and, and I agree with him. We are so inundated with God's goodness that we don't notice it anymore. And you almost have to be a Bible reader to come to the conclusion that you need to be noticing it and you need to be thanking God for it. Something happens in thankfulness. It's why God calls us to it. He's not just calling us to it because He needs to hear it. Your thankfulness doesn't add anything to God. He doesn't need to hear it. You need to give it. Something happens in the soul of man when he is thankful to God. It's just a spiritual reality. And one of those blessings, and you tell me if I'm wrong, one of those blessings of God that probably some of you have never thanked Him for is your sight. We're talking about a blind man, born blind, so Jesus just creates new eyes, right? It, I know it's often called a healing, but it's really more than a healing. Jesus is creating new eyes for a man who was born blind. How many of you have thanked God, consciously thanked God for your vision? See, I got it on you. Well, there's a couple. Okay, I, I, I'm consciously aware of this because I've lost 10% of my peripheral on this, in this eye. And the doctors don't know why, but I've, I can't see this. I can see this, I can't see this. So sometimes when you walk up on my right side, it's not that I'm being rude. I, I, don't, I don't know you that you're there. I don't know that you're there. So it's like, I'm keenly aware of when you have blackness where there was sight. I, I, so I have some awareness of this. And I just wanted to, you know, inform your ability to be thankful. Uh, for your sight. So let me just do a mini, a mini eye appreciation seminar here. Your eye contains 130 million light-sensitive rods and cones which generate photochemical reactions that convert light into electrical impulses. 130 million light-sensitive rods. One billion of these impulses are transmitted to your brain every second. Okay. I mean, are you worshiping yet? Probably not. You should be. The eye can make over 100,000 separate motions. When confronted with darkness, it can increase its ability to see 100,000 times. <clears throat> well, I was going to go off on a tangent, but I'm going to restrain myself. It has automatic aiming, focusing, and maintenance. I, I was reading a famous uh, microbiologist in the States. His name's Michael Behe. And he says, science doesn't even really understand how it all works yet. They don't even really get it all yet, okay? I know you think modern science presents itself as having almost all the answers. It has almost no answers, okay? It has a lot of theories and conjectures and hypotheses, but they don't really have a lot of answers, particularly when it comes down to the, the fine print. But here's what's happening when you look at me and see me, okay? When light first strikes the retina, a photo... Uh, a, pho a photon interacts with a molecule called 11-cyst-ret... 
retinol, which rearranges within picoseconds to transretinol. Who knows what a picosecond is? Come on. I have no idea if she's right. She possibly could be. Okay, here's what I know. Okay, here's what I think about a picosecond. Okay, this is what I read about a picosecond. A picosecond is the time it takes a light it takes light to travel the breadth of a single human hair. Okay? Okay, we've got a debate going on here. Okay, let's postpone that until after after the rest. Let me finish reading this thing. The change in the shape of the Retinol molecule forces a change in the shape of the protein rhodopsin to which the retinol is tightly bound. The protein's metamorphosis alters its behavior. Now it's called metarhodopsin 2. The protein sticks to another protein called transducin, which interacts with the molecule called GDP. Do you want me to keep going? There are pages and pages and pages of this. It just continues and continues and continues. And this is what's happening when you see me. And... You've never thanked God for it. All that redopsin and transducin and you you've never thanked God. My point is, obviously, if you try to well you can't do it, you can't thank God for all the things that He the good things He has given to us. One more quote, and I'm, I'm, I'll get into the text. But I was reading this guy. Uh, he's a professor of physiology. He says it would take... You're not, this is going to blow your mind if you don't know anything about vision. It would take a minimum of 100 years of supercomputer time to simulate what takes place in your eye many times each second. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are an awesome biological machine. And you have not thanked God as you ought. And I include myself. I mean, really, in all honesty, we should be in such awe we can't get anything else done during the day because what God has done in us, David said it, for you formed my inward parts. You weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Something happens in the heart of a man when he knows the goodness of God is manifest in his own physiology. I'm not just talking about out there. In the created order we see the glory of God, but the glory of God is within us. Just, we just, we'll just stay on vision. It's a miracle. It's just a miracle. We take it for granted every day. It's a miracle. It's a miracle what God has done. And David says, I know it. I know this is a miracle. I know I'm a miracle. I know I walk around and I see and I function and I think and I love and I hope and I dream. It's all a miracle. You know, somebody says, well, uh, do you believe in miracles? Is there such a thing as miracles? You are one. You are one. You're a biological miracle. I think it would do well for us to be thankful. David is teaching us something here. There's a high cost in taking everything for granted. As I always say to you, you are so concerned about the three things that aren't just right in your life. 
And you are giving no time to being thankful to the countless things that are. We're all guilty of this, beloved. I own it before God all the time. I spent, I spent, a day gets away from me, but I spent the day, you know, worrying about the three things that aren't the way I wish they were instead of spending the day thanking God for His goodness to me. It's just a waste of time. It's an error that I think all of us are guilty of. So I want to say this. Don't let anybody sell you on victimhood and entitlement. It's a pathway to a black hole in a dead soul. It's one of the Romans' one reasons that man will be judged. Thanklessness. So that brings me... Say, Jim, what's that got to do with John chapter 9? I'm not really sure, but I'm hoping God will make some sense out of it, okay? I certainly do know that a, a man born blind was given sight. And I guess I wanted to, to make the point. Have you thanked Him for it? And if you haven't, I would encourage you to do it. Seven weeks ago, uh, in this church, we saw Jesus proclaim Himself to be God. Last week, <clears throat> as we began John 9, He authenticated that claim with His Colossians 1.16 uh, Creator of new eyes in a man born blind. So he claims to be God, then he authenticates it. No man born blind ever sees. It just doesn't happen. A divine miracle has clearly taken place. And of course, here's a man who would never take his sight for granted. In the Bible, physical blindness is always a metaphor for spiritual blindness. This is what John chapter 9 is about. It's not simply about a man getting his physical sight. It's about a man getting his spiritual sight, right? That's really what this chapter is about. It's about seeing God for who He is, that He's infinitely valuable above anyone or anything else. He's the greatest treasure and the highest pleasure of a life. It's, be, it's seeing like that, right? That's what we're talking about. It's seeing like that. It's seeing the value of Christ. That's what we're talking about in John chapter 9. And, and this is just a metaphor. Okay? God, yes, He actually does create, the, but, but, but this is, we're supposed to go to school on this. Right? We're supposed to, to, to understand that we're going to see. Where we were blind, now we see. We see the glory of Christ. Everything's changed. Nothing can be the same. We see the glory of Christ. We heard the question, why was this man born blind? That the works of God might be displayed in Him. The psalmist says in 63.3, Your steadfast love is better than life. This is what this man sees. This is what the Pharisees don't see. This is the Pharisees, these sighted men don't see that Jesus is the highest value in the universe. This blind man begins to see it. And if you're born again, you understand what I'm saying. You understand what I am saying. So this man, he, he obeys the Lord. Listen to this. Okay. Jesus noticed him, Jesus engaged him, Jesus gave him some instructions. The man believed Jesus. He came back see, okay? And this is a perfect picture of, of spiritual conversion, of spiritual sight. 
It's a Jesus encounter. We obey the Word. We obey His instructions. And we too come back seeing. Also tonight we see this fixed and set and determined unbelief in the Pharisees. We've been seeing it all, all along in the Gospel of John. They will not believe no matter what. So twice in the Gospel so far, Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever turns to this light will see. So we left this man last week um, with his new eyes in the midst of controversy and confusion with his neighbors. That brings us to verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. So why do they bring him to the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees, they're the mediators of, of anything important in, um, in Jerusalem. And as we saw in the text, oops, Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath. This is a big problem, obviously, for these religious fanatics. So, why, does, why do they bring this man to the Pharisee? Verse 14 answers the question, because on, it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened His eyes. It's like Jesus can't get the Sabbath right, right? It's like He healed the, guy, the, the paralytic on the Sabbath. Well, well, wait, do you think God has a purpose in all this? Why is He provoking the Pharisees? Why is He healing on the Sabbath? Because He's Lord of the Sabbath. He does whatever He pleases. He's not subject to their religious rules. He's not subject to their authority. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In one of the Gospels, I forget, I think it's Mark. I don't have a reference for you. God does whatever He wants. Whatever He wants. He's not subject to your expectations and He's not subject to any religious rules. Okay? And I want you to understand, these religious rules are not from God. These are written by men. <laughs> God's not constrained by your rules or anyone else's. These guys had... It was really a joke. If you ever read some of this, some of this the history of the first century, it's just it's unbelievable. But apparently God broke three or four religious rules when He healed this guy. One, you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath and make mud. That's work. You can't put spittle, which was believed to have, have medicinal qualities, on someone on the Sabbath that's treating a patient. You could treat only if the life was in danger, but you could not improve their condition. That was work. So Jesus has run afoul of the Sabbath rules once again. How dare God heal a blind man on the Sabbath, right? This is how stupid religion is. This is how stupid religion always is. Even, even pseudo-Christianity. Okay? Apostate Christianity. You get into so many goofy things, right? That have nothing to do with the Bible, have nothing to do with God. But for the balance of this chapter, we will see how messed up religion is and we will watch these religious men continue to uh, do battle with the Lord. It's a major sub-theme of the Gospel of John. So, <clears throat> dead religion, as we've noted many times here, and I always like to note it because I have no idea what church you came out of, out of and I have no idea what church you're going to. But I do want you to understand, pseudo-Christianity is alive and well. Apostate Christianity is everywhere in the world. And you have to go to a church that does this. And if it adds to this, 
you don't need to go there. If it takes away from this, you don't need to go there. Religion is Satan's best weapon. He takes billions to hell with religion, right? And no doubt he enjoys the irony of pseudo-Christianity, apostate Christianity. People who think they're Christians that end up with him in hell. Because they trusted their, oh, I prayed the prayer, or I did the ordinance, oh, I have perfect attendance at Sunday school. Well, that's good! But if you're trusting in that, you're trusting in the wrong thing. Right? We're called to trust in the Lord. Satan knows he wins when men love their religion more than God. And Satan knows he wins when men trust their religion more than they trust the Savior. He wins. So it's one of his best weapons. As one old dead Puritan said, God calls people to love and trust and worship Him with their obedience. Instead, they try to fool Him with their religion. You know anybody like this? You probably do if you've been around the church very long. Not just this church, but the church at large. Verse 15, Therefore the Pharisees were asking Him, How did you receive your sight? And He said to them that He, Jesus, applied clay to my eyes, and, and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep our rules. He's not as religious as us. He can't be from God. We're from God. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division between them. Again, these rules are not from God. These are man-made rules. They are not out of the Word of God. The Pharisees had made a fetish out of the Sabbath and they lorded it over the people, right? They just laid burden upon burden upon burden. You know, the Sabbath was made for man that he could enjoy God. And the, the religious men have made it so burdensome that... It was the worst day of the week. So why is Jesus yanking their chain on the Sabbath? Because He hates sin. Because apostate Judaism is going to take these guys to hell. Why does He... Jesus is always in the face of sin. He's always in the face of false teaching. He's always in the face of apostasy. So He's in these guys' face for a reason. Okay, one, he's proclaiming that he is in fact God. He's, he's not subject to their little rules, but he's also saying, you're trusting in your religion. You're not, you do not know God. All you know are your rules. That's all you know. This is one thing that we're seeing here in the text. So, truth always confronts error. Karen had it. A young woman she was talking with this week, and um, she said, "Oh well, now the church I went to, we don't talk about that because it could cause division." There's one reason that division is a good thing. What's that reason? It's about truth. Okay, truth always trumps unity. Yes, Christians strive for unity, but we never strive for unity in such a way that we edit uh, or ignore the, the Word of God. The Word of God is first. You know? It's always first. It's, it's paramount. It's supreme. 
Yes, we want to maintain unity if we can, but that's not our first priority. Our first priority is the truth of God. It's God's revelation. And I tell you a lot, nobody else is going to tell you the truth about yourself except God. Nobody else will tell you the truth about yourself. The world's either going to flatter you or it's going to demean you. Both things are wrong. Okay? God will tell you the truth about yourself. And the other thing He does in the Word, He tells you the truth about Himself. And then you know where you stand, right? <laughs> There's no confusion. I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I desperately need a Savior. Oh, there He is. There He is on the cross. So dead religion here, we see it in these men in John 9. It's concerned about things that really don't matter. You remember Jesus' words in Mark 7 to the Pharisees. They were complaining to Christ about His disciples not walking according to tradition. Jesus says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, this people honors, honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from Me. How many churches do you know like that? It's just all lip service, man. Yeah, I did my Sunday thing. I'll do whatever I want the rest of the week. I'll live like the world. This has nothing to do with Christianity. Well, I'm going to confess to the priest and that'll make it all good. I'll do my Hail Marys or whatever, you know, your tradition is. This is all tradition of men. God hates all this stuff. He hates all this stuff, right? Jesus says, but in vain do you worship Me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the traditions of men. You have set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. You invalidate the Word of God with your religion. So this is a big deal, beloved. God in His Word always attacks false teachers and false religion. All you got to do is read the New Testament. You can read the Old Testament. But it's really acutely uh, presented in the New Testament. False teachers and false religion blaspheme God and it takes, as I said earlier, billions to hell. I've often been criticized for criticizing different... Um, I try, you know, sometimes I do name names. I don't do that often. Sometimes I will name denominations. If you ask me, I'll tell you anything you want to know as far as I know. But I've been criticized about this sometimes. But you know, God takes no prisoners in this regard. <laughs> you know, Philippians chapter 3, God calls false teachers dogs and evil workers. In Galatians 1, He says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let that man be accursed. So, beloved, I know it can sound petty when a preacher can, uh, critiques the teaching of a different church. I, I know it can sound petty and self-serving. But what it should be and what it is in this pulpit, God willing, it's an act of love. Don't you dare sit under a false teacher. Don't you dare do it. Such a thing does exist. It's always existed. The, full, the New Testament is full of the apostles critiquing and condemning false teachers. So, verse uh, 16, 
There is a division that has arisen among them. Some say, how could he be a sinner uh, and, and do such a thing? But we know this man is not of God because he does not keep our rules. Again, truth divides. It always divides. And those who see the light go with Jesus and those who don't reject Jesus with a visceral kind of hatred. Some of you have encountered this in the world. You witness and there's this unreasoning unthinking, uncritical kind of uh, reflexive response to what you're trying to say to them. It's just, I'll read it to you. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Listen, don't be discouraged when you... When you bump into hostility when you're sharing the truth, you're going to bump into hostility. Most people are not going to receive what you're saying. They're just not going to receive it. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Let's move on to verse 17. And they said, therefore, to the blind man, again, what, what do you say about, about Him, about Jesus, since He opened your eyes and He said, He is... A prophet. So they asked the blind man his opinion of Jesus, and he says the most logical, apparent, and obvious thing, he's a man of God. Right? I would suspect you would have said the same thing. He doesn't really know very much about Jesus. Jesus has quite the reputation in Galilee at this time and in Jerusalem. His name is widely known, but he doesn't really know that he's the Messiah. But he knows he is from God, he sees what the Pharisees refuse to see. Jesus is of God. How can a man do such a sign and not be of God? Verse 18 to 23, the discussion begins. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was, was born blind? Then how does he now see? And the parents, you know, they start backpedaling here. They're afraid of the Pharisees. We're going to see it in the text. They answered, they said, We know that this is our son. We know he was born blind, verse 21. But how he sees, we don't know. He is of age. Why don't you ask him? So his parents said, this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone should confess Him to be Christ, He would be put out of the synagogue. So, yeah, this is pretty, it's a pretty sad deal. These parents, more or less, are abandoning their son to these Pharisees. But first, let's talk about these Pharisees. Do you, did you notice the word here, until, in verse 18? It says they did not believe. Then you see the word until. And then they did believe. You see the point? You see the implication? They did believe a man born blind was given sight. They believe it. They still hate God. They still reject God. Do you see how insane unbelief is? This is really, this chapter is like, it's like um, a tutorial on how radical and unreasoning and unreasonable unbelief is in the heart 
of man. They came to believe that a miracle had happened, but they would not accept Christ. They would not accept the John 8.58 claim, before Abraham was born, I am. And I give a blind man new eyes. A man born blind. They wouldn't, they wouldn't believe it. It was just like Lazarus. You remember what happened with Lazarus, right? What did the Pharisees do? They knew a dead man came out of the tomb. They still wouldn't believe. They would not believe. This is how hard-hearted men are. You know, and if you know your Bibles, you realize unless God is doing a work, we saw it in John 6, unless God is drawing, unless God is doing a work, men won't come at all. Men won't come. They're haters of God, as we'll see in just a few minutes. They are not denying the authenticating signs and miracles and powers of Jesus. They are simply refusing to believe. Many in your circle, as you witness to them, they simply will not believe. And then you get the guy with the 10,000 questions, right? And you realize that after about 5,000 of them, you can't satisfy this guy. It doesn't matter how many questions you answer. The question is to try to discredit you in some way or your position or you know, the, the Bible in some way. This is not about get, garnering information so I can come to believe. This is about trying to you know, discredit you and discredit your message. You, you know, you've got people in your life, <laughs> 10,000 questions. It doesn't matter. If you give them 10,000 good answers, they're still not going to believe. They don't want to believe. Right? You guys, I think, know what I'm talking about. There's this unreasoning hostility toward God. Where does this come from, Jim? Well, I'm going to read a text to you that I read to you probably five or six times a year. The reason I do is because it's imperative that you understand it, that this is who you were before Christ, and this is who many of your friends and family are without Christ. Okay? This is who fallen man is. Romans 1, 19-21. Okay, this is how I know the Pharisees know who Jesus is, but they just will not acknowledge Him. Okay? God tells us. Romans 1, 19-21, because of that which is known about God is evident within them. It's in you. It's written on your heart. It's written in your conscience. Jesus Christ is God. You can deny it all you want. Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, you can deny it till you die. It doesn't make it less true. God made it evident within you. You know you have no excuse. I have no excuse. No man, woman, boy, or girl has an excuse. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood so, uh, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No man will stand before God and say, I didn't know, I never heard. Wrong! It's on your heart. It's on your conscience. I put it there. You do know. These Pharisees know. It's not that they don't know. They know. And they don't want God. It's just like the unbelievers you witness to. 
in the world. They don't want God. But God is calling some, right? And He's using you. He's using you to sow the good seed. Let me finish Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or what? Give thanks. We talked about that a few moments ago. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the text goes on to say that mankind, they are haters of God. It's, you have to understand who you are. The Bible says you're a rebel. Okay? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says about you and me. And every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. You are a rebel. You've rebelled against God. You chafe at the authority of God. You're not interested in living in submission to God. You don't like Him. And you don't want Him. This is why there's so many made-up cartoon gods in the world. People have just made up stuff. They just make up their own gods because they don't like the God who is. Right? They don't like the God who is. <laughs> they want to make up their own God. It's an epidemic, as you know, in the world. Some, you know, people who refuse to receive Jesus or are just playing games with one of the many pseudo-Christs will say to me, no, I'm not willfully rejecting God. And I say to them, the Bible says you are. I'm not saying it. Listen, you've got to get to where you, you, you say the Bible says. Don't say I think or I believe. Nobody cares. Because they believe something too. You have to get to where you say the Bible says. Or God says in the Bible. You have to learn how to talk like this. Nobody cares what you think. I mean, ultimately. It doesn't really matter what you think. It does matter what God thinks. So learn, I encourage you to learn to, to talk this way. This Romans 1 thing is what Lewis is talking about. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about hell, he says, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. Do you understand what's being said? God-haters are still God-haters in hell. The door's locked on the inside. They're not coming out. If the price of coming out is to worship Jesus Christ and love Him, they will not come out. You know, there's this image of, oh, you know, someone's in hell and it was just, oh, if, if, it, it could have been different. No, they're God-haters. They're not coming out. They're not coming out. If the price is to worship Jesus It's not that men don't know, it's that they do know. This is what the Bible teaches. If you're confused about that, please, I'll be happy to talk with you about it. So what about these parents? Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. They, as I said, they seem to be abandoning their, their son to these ruthless Pharisees. But you need some background here. There was a lot at stake. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Sometimes you have a lot at stake, right? In sharing the Gospel. Sometimes that moment comes, you're at work, or you're with your friends, you're at the university, and all of a sudden you're presented with this moment of, of, of opportunity to witness about, to witness about Christ. All of a sudden, it's on you. It just comes on you. It's unexpected. Bam! There it is. What are you going to do? Well, you say, well, these guys, th th these parents didn't know that Jesus, but they know He's from God. They know that. 
They know they had a blind son who was born that way. Now they have a son who sees. You know they've had a conversation, right? And they say, they say, well, what about, what about this? You know, and being put out of the temple, verse 22. In effect, if you're put out of the temple, you lose the welfare system. You lose your business and commercial opportunities. You're an outcast. You're a social outcast. It's humiliating. It's traumatizing. And it's ruinous. Nothing worse could happen to a first century Jew than to be put out of the temple. Of course they're afraid. They have reason to be afraid. But they succumb to it, right? They succumb to the fear. They say, ask Him. He is of age. So they play it safe. And I'm going to ask you, next time that comes, next time that opportunity comes, will you play it safe or will you, will you proclaim? Why are you still here? Tell me, why are you still here? You could worship God far better in heaven. Why are you still here? There's only one reason. If you're a Christian, there's only one reason you're still here. It's to be His what? What does He call us to be? Tell me. Witness. It's the only reason you're here. Heaven would be far better than here. You think, well, no, Jim. You know, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. Well, okay, okay, okay. But all your little temporal plans are a joke compared to what God has planned for us in the new heaven and new earth. You know, I used to say, people say, well, Jim, what would, are you ready to die or do you want to do one more thing? I used to say I want to preach one more time. And I kind of really would like to. <laughs> but, you know, I figured out this is blasphemous. It's, 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 it's saying that for me to preach one more time would be better than to be looking into the face of Jesus Christ. I know that's blasphemous. It's because I simply don't know what it would be like. But I know it's better than preaching one more time. I've learned that. I don't say that anymore. And don't you say it anymore. Oh, well, I just want to... Don't say it anymore. You're giving away that you don't know how awesome your God is and what it would be like to be in His presence. So, yeah, ask Him. He's of age. They kind of bow out gracefully. But listen, it's going to happen to you. It happens to me. Some of you have had this happen to you, you know. Some of you may have lost a job. Some of you have lost a family because you became a real lover of Jesus. This happens. If you've been in the church, around the church very long, you may have been aware of it. So, it's costly to proclaim Christ sometimes. It just is. And I guess what I want to say to you, are you ready? Are you prayed up and are you ready to proclaim Him? When that, when that comes, it just comes out of the blue. There it is. Bam. It's time to make much of Jesus. What did Jesus, how did He say it? Do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? No, I tell you, I came to bring division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This happens. It happens. Yes, it's costly sometimes to be a disciple. Jesus makes it real clear. You know, if you, don't want to, if you don't want to be part of the cost, then just go on and live your life. 
But if you want to go with Christ, be ready to make a witness. And you don't have to be obnoxious about it. You know, some people are just obnoxious about it. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. But you know, you need to be ready to be able to talk intelligently about, about who God is. Jesus goes on to say, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Do you understand that verse? Do you get it? You've got to know Christ to get that verse. It's not that a man or woman loves her, his or her family less. In fact, if they have become a real Christian, they've learned to love them better. But we love Him supremely. And it's like we can't help it because He's so beautiful and awesome. I had a guy, and I'm, I'm about done. I don't know how long I preached. I'm sorry, I forgot to look at my watch. Um, when Karen and I were about to come over here, you know, we, we liquidated. We were leaving our family and, and our friends and our culture and coming to Italy. This was back in 04. And, and uh, I, I, a colleague said, hey, I want to take you to lunch before you leave. And I said, okay, okay. We were talking. He said, you know, he said, Jim, I love Jesus and everything. He said, man, but I could never do what you're doing. And I said, well, how come? He said, because I love my family too much. And I said, wrong! You don't, you must not love them very much at all. Because if you really loved them, you would show them that Christ is supremely valuable. This is what a man needs to show his wife and his kids. Jesus is supremely valuable. It's what a, a, a mother and a wife needs to show to her husband and her kids. Jesus Christ is supremely valuable. It's the best gift you ever give your children. You know, don't talk to me about, well, I want to stay and... You know, make sure they have a lot of comfort, a lot of ease, a lot of toys, and, and a lot of prosperity, and a lot of opportunity. <clears throat> no. No. Listen, it, if God calls you to do a thing, go do it. Go do it. You won't regret it. God says, so we see, these, we see the parents. They're afraid. And I'm just going to close with this. What is the most oft-repeated command in the Bible? What is the most oft-repeated command of God in the Bible? Do not fear. You want to fear. I want to fear. It's the natural inclination of, of, of the human flesh, the fallen flesh. God says, don't fear. Now, I love Isaiah 51.12. I am He who comforts you and are you, and who are you that you are afraid of man? So, we see a couple of things here. We see unbelief and we see fear. And this is a big lesson for us, beloved. Do not fear. It doesn't mean fear doesn't well up in you when the pressure comes. It will. But you have to preach it away. To yourself, you know, you just preach it away. You have to decide. Hey, I, you have to decide. Hey, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real about this. I want to be a good steward of my time. I want to make much of Jesus. Life's too short, man. We're all going to be standing before Him soon, giving an account. 
you got to make up your mind. You're going to be, you're going to be a radical disciple, or you're going to be a churchgoer. I mean, really, there's nothing in between. There's just really nothing in between. You have to decide who you want to be in Christ, right? So, there's a lot here for us. There's a lot here for us. Understand, understand the intractable unbelief that you encounter in the world and understand that fear will come, but your God is bigger than all the fear. I am He who comforts you. You who you are, who are you that you are afraid of man? Fear not. Be a fearless witness in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't we don't want to be churchgoers. We don't want to just be people who go to church because we think we ought to. We don't want to be those people. We want to be those people that turn the world upside down. We want to be those people. We know that our life is a vapor. We know that soon we will be with You. So Father, help us to judge every day in light of those realities. We're not just trying to get through the day or the week or the month or the year or trying to get to our pension. We're n- this is not who we are. This is not how we live. We just want to make much of You. And oh Lord, we confess our weakness. We confess our fear. We confess our anxiety and concern. We confess all of that and ask You, Lord, to give us the faith we need to be Your people. Help us, Father, we pray. Help us be Your people in the world. We know why we're in Milan. We know why we live in Milan. We know why we're passing through Milan. It's all about You. It's not about us. It's about what You want to do in us and through us and to impact those in our orbit. So Lord, help us. Help us. Help us, we pray, in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I'll read a, I'll read a, I'll read a benediction. Let's stand together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Alright. I don't want... Okay. This week's not going to be like every other week. This week you're going to consciously start talking to God about being His witness. You're going you're gonna to prepare your soul and your heart and your mind that you will not fear. You will not fear to speak the name of Jesus Christ in the world. You will not fear that. You are ready to proclaim that. You are ready to give testimony. You are a warrior. You are a warrior. If you're a Christian, you're a warrior. So go. Make much of Jesus. Speak His name to the world. They need to hear it. It's an act of love. Even if they hate you for it, it's an act of love. So go. 
Go and make much of Jesus. God bless. Have a good week.